So when Jackie and I are at the end of a long day, we're, we're clearly exhausted, right? We're fumbling over our words. We're not putting coherent sentences together. There's three little words we like to say to each other. Don't judge me, <laughs> right? Don't judge me. I know I'm tired right now. I know I'm not putting forth my best effort, but it's been a long day. Please don't judge me. Anyone heard those words before, right? Those words are, they're pretty popular in our society nowadays, right? Don't judge me. But there's other words that sometimes follow those words that blow my mind a little bit, especially when Christians say them. Don't judge me, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. And it concerns me when Christians use those words because it makes me wonder, have you really thought about what it means that God is going to judge you? Because the truth is, all of us, believers and non-believers, there will come a day where God will judge us. And that person who says, only God can judge me, is going to learn what they meant with what they said on that day. And so today, I've been given the awesome privilege by Pastor Stephen to talk to you about the final judgment. And so in talking about the final judgment, I just want to say it one more time. When you say only God can judge me, you will come to realize that truth one day. And I promise nearly everyone who says that phrase, only God can judge me, is going to realize how short-sighted they were in saying those words. God will judge, and he will judge justly. Now, when it comes to this final judgment, all will be judged. Believers are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Non-believers are going to be judged at the great white throne. And now, in talking about the final judgment, it reminded me of the, uh, a, a day back when I was probably like fourth, fifth grade, and my oldest sister was really into puzzles. Any puzzle people here? Okay, so she's working on a 1,000-piece puzzle. She gets 999 pieces together and can't find the final piece and she proceeds to lose it, right? She's looking everywhere. She cannot find this final piece. And so I come over, and I'm like, Mick, what's going on? I can't find the final piece. I have put all this time into putting this puzzle together, and the last piece is missing. And now my sister, she had some, some vision problems, and so depth perception was an issue for her. And so I came over, and I looked at the puzzle, and what had happened was the last piece was stacked on top of another piece, and because of her vision problems, she wasn't able to see that clearly. So I was able to be a savior on that day, right? Because here she is freaking out. I'm like, Nick, it's, it's right here. It's okay. And now I didn't make the mistake of putting the last piece where it was supposed to go. I just pointed out, hey, here's the last piece. Here's the point I'm trying to give you this morning. All I'm talking about is the final judgment. Okay, why do I say that? End times theology, um, I am not discussing any sort of timeline today. Pre this, post that, mid, I'm not getting into any timeline. If that's you and you love end times theology, fantastic. Happy for you, 
Not my thing, just being honest, I am talking about the final judgment. I am talking about the last piece. So I'm not worried about the 999 other pieces. I am only talking about the final judgment. And so when we look at fundamental truth 15, this is how it's defined. It says this, there will be a final judgment in which the wicked dead will be raised and judged according to their works. Whosoever is not found written in the book of life, together with the devil and his angels, the beast and the false prophet, will be consigned to the everlasting punishment in the lake which burneth, KJV, with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so, talking about the final judgment, obviously from this definition, it should be clear, we're talking about the judgment of the wicked. And so, why is this necessary to discuss It's very possible, likely definite, that there will be many who came to church weekly and that never knew Christ. Right off the bat, if you're here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, I cannot urge you enough to pay attention to the word today because your soul is at stake. Jesus died for your salvation. I cannot implore you enough to choose Jesus today. The final judgment, the judgment of the wicked, it is just that. It is final. It is punishment. It is consequence. And it is eternal. And these next few moments where we talk about the reality of a just God and the justice that he will execute at the final judgment, these next few moments could change the destination of your eternity. God will bring justice through judgment. And I certainly desire that you would avoid the final judgment, but this is about more than you. You who are sitting here, who know the truth about Jesus, what of your friends and loved ones that don't? If we truly believe in Jesus as our Savior and the eternal life he's promised us with him in heaven, there should be a holy fear. There should be a fierce desire to make sure that all come to know Jesus and avoid eternal damnation. I've shared this story with you before, but when we talk about this, I, I have to bring it up. Penn Gillette, famous magician, doing a show, and so he's greeting people after the show, and Penn Gillette is a very decidedly clear atheist. He's not shy about the fact that he's an atheist, and so he's greeting people after the show, and he sees this one guy standing off to the side waiting for him, and the guy waits and waits and waits, and finally the line has died down, and this guy approaches Penn Jillette, and he hands him a Bible. And Penn Jillette kind of chuckles for a moment because everyone knows he's an atheist, and yet here's this guy who waited all this time just to hand him a Bible. And here's the powerful thing. There's a video on YouTube you can watch. If you, if you type in Penn Jillette, uh, Bible, you'll see this video pop up where Penn Jillette talks about this moment. And he doesn't mock the Christian. He doesn't dismiss him. Instead, he asks one of the most powerful questions I've ever heard. How much do you have to hate someone to think you know the answer and not share it with them? That's an atheist saying that, respecting that a Christian waited to give him the Bible because that man loved Penn so much. He said, I want you to know the truth. I would love for you to avoid what awaits you if you don't choose Jesus in this lifetime. Everyone is going to be judged. 
It'll go differently for believers than it does for those who don't believe. But the judgment that we all will face at the end, it should affect the way we live our lives today. And so I want to look at what some different scriptures say about God and judgment first. I want to establish God's judgment scripturally first with you this morning. In Genesis 18, 25, we see Abraham talking with God, and he says this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And then listen to this question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews 9.26 through 28, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that, comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And finally, Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And verse 31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I want you to hear me this morning. We will all face God's judgment. And God's judgment is not something that should ever have us defensively claiming only God can judge me. That judgment is going to lay bare every word, every action, every thought, every intention we will be judged for. And so when it comes to God's judgment, I propose this. God's judgment should really encourage us to live with the end in mind. God's judgment should really encourage us to live with the end in mind. Just a little over a week ago, we hosted Pastor Chuck's funeral here. And Pastor Chuck's son, Matthew, got up and his tribute to his father was this, that everything that anyone could have said about Pastor Chuck It was a funeral where everything that was said was true because Pastor Chuck lived with the end in mind. It wasn't a funeral service where empty platitudes had to be spoken. No, every word shared about him was good because he was a man who lived with the end in mind and that there is no doubt that Pastor Chuck got to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, now enter into your reward. God's judgment should really encourage us to live with the end in mind. So in talking about the great white throne, where the wicked are going to be judged, I want you to hear me on this. This final judgment, when it happens, when God judges all of the wicked dead, there will be not even a smidge of unfairness or injustice at that judgment. 
There won't be a smidge of unfairness or injustice at that judgment. Revelation 20, verse 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The judgment of those who didn't believe in Jesus as their savior takes place at the great white throne. There will be no believers at the great white throne. There will be no non-believers at the judgment seat of Christ. At the great white throne, these are the wicked dead. The cross cannot and will not protect them. And without the cross to protect them, these wicked dead are exposed to the full wrath of God. For this judgment, books are opened. The wicked will then be judged according to what they've done. And then the book of life is opened. Though the wicked are judged by their deeds, salvation is not by works. Their works, their deeds are simple evidence of their unbelief. In other words, the book of life is opened as a witness to the fact that they were not among those who had placed their faith in Jesus and followed him with trust and obedience. The great white throne is the final judgment. It judges the brief time spent on this earth and the choices made during this time. Maybe you've heard the cliche or seen it as a quote on Facebook, our decisions now will echo in eternity. This lifetime is your opportunity to choose Jesus and thus choose eternal life when you die. Grace abounds while you're alive. However, to die not, uh, having not chosen Jesus, there is no more opportunity for that choice to be made. If you don't choose Jesus in this lifetime, after you die, it is an irreversible decision. There is no opportunity after death to change your mind about Jesus. And I'm going to get deeper into the consequence of this decision at the end of this message, but I do want to take this opportunity to assert what we believe about hell, and that is this, that our position is defined as that of eternal conscious torment. We do not believe that non-believers are annihilated, meaning completely canceled out of existence. We do not believe that there is a second chance after death, and we do not believe in purgatory. This lifetime is it. It is this lifetime you are given to make a decision about Jesus. And let me be direct and say it this way. If you're here this morning and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you are not promised tomorrow. You are not promised the next second, the next breath, the next minute, hour, or day. In 13 years of full-time ministry, this has been the most sobering sermon writing experience I have ever had because the judgment that non-believers will face and that believers will face should inspire a deep, holy fear and reverence for the fact that the all-knowing God will lay our lives bare before us at the final judgment. We are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if being direct about the scary reality of eternity without God is what it takes to convince you of the love of Jesus, then so be it. But both now and at the end of this message, I'm pleading with you to choose Jesus. 
And now I know I'm, I'm currently coming at this from the angle of wanting you to avoid this final ju judgment. You can understand that, right? I want you to avoid this. However, that is not all I want you to hear from me this morning. In fact, I want you to hear from Jesus in John 10.10. 10. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus then says, but I have come that you might have life and have life abundantly. But I want you to hear me, because you see, prosperity gospel preachers, they love to take this verse and twist it and mean something that it's not meant to mean. I gotta tell you, if Jesus can look at the rich young ruler and say, go, sell, give all that you have to the poor, and then come follow me, I don't think Jesus died on the cross for me to have a mansion or the most expensive car or worry about wealth and health being the best that it can be. And so, this abundant life that he's talking about, it's not about the here and now, it's about an eternity with him. It's about avoiding the stealing, killing, and destroying of your soul by the enemy and enjoying the abundant life in eternity that Jesus came to provide. And Jesus, he didn't come just once to provide it. No, he came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was unjustly crucified, and on the third day rose again, forever defeating sin and death. And because he rose from the grave, we look forward to when he comes again with all victory in his hands, and those who are dead in Christ are resurrected to enjoy the eternity that Jesus, our blessed hope, has promised us when he said that he was leaving to build us a place where we could live together forever. Jesus willingly paid the price of your sin on the cross. You have the freedom to choose to believe in Jesus or not, but know this, without the cross to speak for you, you will face not only judgment, but you will face the full weight of God's wrath. Listen, the cross is but a glimpse of what an eternity of God pouring out his wrath looks like. If you have any question about how God the Father feels about sin, all you need to do is look at the cross for a glimpse of the wrath that was poured out on Jesus in your place. Yes, we will all face judgment, but non-believers will not just face judgment because the cross will not speak for them, they will face God's full wrath. And so if we're living with the end in mind, how should the end inform my present day living? And so I want to look at some scriptural precedents for living. And I chose some scriptures from 1 Peter and 2 Peter this morning. There's plenty of other scriptures I could have chosen, but I just went with 1 Peter and 2 Peter. So let's look. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with 
glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Later in chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And finally, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So I gave you all those scriptures just to say that's how it should inform our present day living, that we are living with the end in mind and we can use the scriptures to help us keep the end in proper perspective that we may live this brief time on earth with the end in mind. But the reality is this, Christian, we will all face judgment at the judgment seat of Christ and hear me this morning, the judgment for believers, it, it goes beyond salvation. I'm not being heretical, just stick with me, okay? Because Paul really drills down in, uh, on this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. Listen to what he says. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Why did Paul use this language? Maybe when you're close with someone, 
they know like the pain points in your life, right? Maybe you've had someone who doesn't know you who addresses the pain points in your life and you don't like it, right? Because they're not aware that they're addressing something painful in your life. But someone who knows you well knows how to navigate talking about those pain points to make a point. Are you with me? And so why does Paul use this language? In 146 BC, roughly 200 years before this letter, there was a Roman general named Lucius Mummius. There was no Roman Empire yet, but the city of Rome was starting to flex its strength. The Romans wanted to bring Greece under their power. And so Lucius Mummius was the general who set out to conquer Corinth. But Mummius had no desire to show mercy. In conquering Corinth, Lucius Mummius decided to obliterate Corinth. He murdered all the men of the city and then burned the entire city to the ground. All the wooden homes in this city were obviously destroyed. The only buildings that withstood the flames were the important buildings made of marble. But here's where it gets interesting. It was after the fire that the Roman army plundered the city. Why? The gold and the silver wasn't affected by the fire. Everything invaluable, sorry, yes, everything without worth had been burned up in the fire. But what happened to the valuable things? The fire may have burned, but the army was able to walk through the rubble of the city and pick up those things that had value, and they walked away with them. The Roman army made off with everything that had value because the fire had destroyed everything that didn't. It is a very real possibility that Paul was using the history of Corinth to make a point to the Corinthians about the life a believer should lead with their brief time on earth. Because in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul tells us about the final state of the righteous. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Salvation is not by works. It is only through Jesus. And yet, the judgment seat of Christ, which all believers will stand in front of, believers will be judged according to what they have done, whether good or bad. I want you to hear me. The judgment seat of Christ is not to determine if you were saved or not. The cross has spoken for you. And because the cross has spoken for you, the wrath of God is absorbed and you don't need to face the wrath of God, but you still face his judgment. So yes, you are saved. Yes, Jesus' blood speaks a better word over you. Yes, on account of Christ and the cross, the Father's wrath has been uh, quenched, and yet we are still to be judged. Now here's the good news. Punishment does not feature in this judgment. The cross has absorbed the punishment. This judgment is about testing our works. And when we talk about testing our works, it is not just the outcome of our life on earth. No, I want you to hear me. Every motive for every action, every idle word every ever spoken, Every thought that we did not take captive and submit to the authority of Christ, every single one will be laid before us by God the judge. 
So it's not just, hey, God, here's the cross. The cross speaks for me. I'm good. No, God is going to judge every idle word, every thought, every motive, every action is going to be judged. And that should provoke a little bit of fear in us, I think. I want you to hear what a... um, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's happening at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, like, you know when you try and remember a story from a long time ago and the, the, the details start to get fuzzy? You know, remember, I gotta tell you something that's not gonna happen at the judgment seat of Christ. The books will be opened and God will have every detail of your life to judge but without wrath because the cross took the wrath. So when the the good news of the cross is the wrath is gone but the reality is there is a judgment, a fine-tooth comb that God is going to go through every aspect of our life with to determine our reward in heaven. Let me share with you what one of the textbooks I I studied from says. It says this, the believer's judgment happens at the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment is for believers only. It's not a judgment on sin, for the believer by accepting Christ as Savior has had his sins judged at the cross already. This judgment is a matter of appropriate rewards for stewardship of opportunity and energy during one's life on earth. A system of rewards is part of Christ's teaching about the hereafter, and it's given elaborate treatment in the Gospels, especially in the parables, and the same principle is clearly stated by Paul in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. In 1 Corinthians 3.11-15, Paul points out that all believers are building an edifice, some of permanent material, gold, silver, and precious stones, some of impermanent material, wood, hay, and stubble. Our deeds will be examined by the fire of God's judgment motives especially will be judged. So before whom do believers appear for this judgment? Revelation 1, 13 through 17, it pictures the glory of the triumphant Christ before whose eyes nothing can be hidden. In view of the responsibility entrusted to believers as stewards of precious opportunity, it is necessary that we first subject our own lives to judgment so that we will not come under later judgment. If we're responsive to the gentle urging of the Holy Spirit and seek daily to allow Christ to live through us, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So did you catch that? That we have a Holy Spirit that can fill us and empower us to build a life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, not built with impermanent things, but permanent things. Our salvation and judgment will bring us into a new relationship that is better than what Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. The description of the new Jerusalem shows God has a better place than the Garden of Eden for us with all the blessings of Eden intensified. God is so good, he always restores us to something better than what we lost. We enjoy fellowship with him now, but the future holds intensified fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and with the whole company of the saints. Life in the new Jerusalem will be exciting. Our infinite God will never run out of new joys and blessings for the redeemed. And since the gates of the city are always open, who knows what the new heavens and earth will have for us to explore. As a believer in Christ, I look forward to that. 
I look forward to that reward. And there is nothing wrong with looking forward to that reward and letting that reward be something that helps you keep this lifetime in proper perspective, that you can live with the end in mind, that all the suffering you might go through now is going to give way to a glory that is way bigger than any trials you might face on this side. There is no problem with letting that reward shape our perspective of this time on earth. And we can have that joy in Jesus that I am going to spend eternity with him in the place that he built for me, for us to enjoy together. Can I get an amen? We have that to look forward to. But I shared about the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of believers, because I wanted to juxtapose that against the judgment that non-believers will face at the great white throne. Because the final state of the wicked is nothing to look forward to. Revelation 20, 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, I'm citing from one of my textbooks here. This is what it says. The Bible describes the final destiny of the lost as terrible beyond imagination. It is outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth from frustration and remorse as they continually suffer the wrath of God. It is a fiery furnace where the fire by its very nature is unquenchable and never goes out. It causes eternal loss or everlasting destruction and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. The flames of burning sulfur tell us how disagreeable the fire will be. The darkness also indicates they are shut out of the light of God. The faith, hope, and love that remain for us will be forever lacking in that environment. The rest we shall enjoy will never be available to them, nor will the joy and peace our Lord gives to those who believe. It will also be a lonely place, shut off from fellowship with God, and the bitterness and gnashing of teeth as well as their unchanged fallen nature will prevent fellowship with each other. After the final judgment, death and Hades are thrown into it for the lake of fire, which is outside the new heavens and earth, will be the only place where death will exist. Then will Christ's victory over death as the wages of sin be... Uh, over death as the wages of sin be finally and fully consummated and in the new heavens and earth there will be no more death. Yes, believers, we get, look, we get to look forward to the day where he will wipe every tear from their eye and there will be no more sickness and no more, no more death. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know the eternal destination that awaits you is not a pleasant one. God's wrath and God's judgment without the cross to speak for you is a scary thing to consider. And when I think about it, obviously I gave you the textbook and it, it, it gives you very, very clearly what the final state of the wicked looks like as well as the final state of the righteous. 
But let me back away from the textbook for a second and just offer this perspective for you. This gentle perspective. Believers, this lifetime, in this broken and fallen world, this is the closest we get to hell. The world is broken, it's fallen, there's sick, there's death, there's tragedy, there's trauma. But for the believer, this world is the closest that we get to hell. On the other hand, George, if you would come up. On the other hand, if you don't know Christ, all of the brokenness, all of the pain of this world, everything negative that this world holds, if you don't know Christ, I need you to know something. This lifetime is the closest you get to heaven. You get no closer to heaven than this world. In Isaiah, there's this verse that speaks about people who are seeing and yet never perceiving. And here's what scares me about not just non-believers, but especially atheists. Those who choose to live their life believing that God is not present in this world. You have made yourself blind to how God works on this earth. And you've convinced yourself that God doesn't exist. But I want you to hear me. God respects the choice you make in this lifetime. And if you choose to live your life here and now without choosing him, God respects your choice so much that he says your eternal destination is forever separated from me. You see, my, my sister had a depth perception issue and she couldn't see the piece stacked on top of the other one. And for agnostics and atheists, they're going to realize that their depth perception was incredibly flawed. And I want you to hear something. Ecclesiastes also tells us that when God created man, he created them with eternity in their hearts. I want you to hear me. If you don't know Jesus, you can have all 999 other pieces to that puzzle. But there is only one piece that fills eternity. And that missing puzzle piece is Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no other piece that will fill that hole of eternity. But if you choose to live your life acting as if that final piece doesn't exist, acting as if the 999 other pieces are good enough, I want you to know your flawed depth perception is going to become crystal clear when you step into an eternity where God says you are forever separated from me. God will respect your choice, but you will not like the outcome of that choice. You have made yourself blind to how God exists. And even though you deny him and you ignore him, I want you to know God's hand is evident. Your eyes are just blind to it. And that if you would just come to Jesus, if you would just come to Jesus, the missing piece, the final piece of the puzzle that brings it all together, your spiritual eyes will be opened. 
And you will be able to see that even years and decades of your life that you spent hating God, claiming he didn't exist, your spiritual eyes will be opened and you will be given a new depth perception that helps you look back and see God had always been faithful even when you were faithless. So yes, hell and the final judgment is scary. It should scare you. There should be a fear and a reverence of God. Believers, for us as well, we don't just get to hide behind the cross and get into heaven. No, every deed, every word, every action, every thought will be laid bare before the holy of holies and will be judged accordingly. And that reality means there's two responses this morning. And so I just want to ask everyone to close their eyes. Because the first response is this. I've already made this claim three, four times through this message, but I can't close this message without giving you an opportunity to respond if you don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, this moment right now can change your eternity forever. Jesus loved you so much. He paid with the cross, but he didn't just die. No, he rose again. And because of that rising again, we have a hope, a blessed hope. We have a resurrection power that we can hold on to, to empower us through this life, to live with the end in mind that we might reap the great reward. But if you don't know Jesus, If that's you right now and you're saying, I've heard something today that I want to change my eternal destiny forever. I want to give my life to Jesus. If that's you this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, could I just see you raise your hand? The second response is this. Believers, it's very possible that your perception of judgment at the end was just that the cross would speak for you and that you get into heaven and maybe you were not aware that this judgment seat of Christ exists where your life is just laid bare before God, before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Holy of Holies and he judges you and maybe you heard that, maybe you heard this story of Lucius Mummius burning Corinth down to the ground and the, the, the impermanent stuff getting burnt away but the permanent remaining and you know, hey Jesus, yes, I do wanna build my life on the foundation of Jesus but this morning I wanna build with the permanent and I wanna stop building with the impermanent. And so I just wanna ask, if that's you, If you had your perception shift this morning because of the judgment that we're all gonna face, would you just raise your hand this morning? Thank you for that hand. Church, we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the fact that we are all gonna stand at the judgment seat of Christ have our lives laid bare where God sifts through it in its entirety there should be a little bit of fear and trembling there when it comes to our salvation And for those who don't know Jesus I want you to avoid that final judgment by choosing Jesus this morning so there were a few hands this morning so I'm going to ask our prayer partners and our pastors to 
to come up to the front. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray, but I wanna ask you that if your hand went up this morning, if, if you wanna give your life to Jesus, let the pastor or prayer partner know because we have a book we'd love to give you about giving your life to Jesus. Or if you're here and you're saying, hey, I learned something today and I, I wanna build on this foundation with valuable things. Let the prayer partner or the pastor know and we can pray over that for you as well. Would you mind standing with me, church? Lord, thank you for how you love us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the price that you paid. But Lord, would you help me to leave here living with the end in mind? Having a holy reverence and fear for you. Not in a negative way, but in a life-giving way that helps us to continually choose to live with the end in mind. Thank you for the price you paid. Thank you that you were with us and that you were for us. And we look forward to that day when we get to spend eternal bliss with you. In Jesus' name, we pray and we believe. Church, if I could just ask you this morning, as you dismiss, if you would do so quietly just to respect the people who have come forward for prayer. And if you haven't responded yet, but you know you need to, our pastors and prayer partners are here for you. Be blessed.